Before I get started, I want to uh, encourage you to visit our bookstall. And by doing that, uh, how I plan to do that is I'm going to see if anyone wants some free books. Some free books. So we have books at the bookstall that Brandon mans at the end of the service. And I feel like Brandon is left all by himself a lot, uh, doesn't get visited much, and we have some really great books. And so I want to highlight a few books. Uh, we have an entire series of books that are about this size. Many people would call this a booklet or a pamphlet uh, or just baby book, whatever you want to call it. They're really easy to read and they deal with various subjects. So these books written by R.C. Sproul, this yellow one is Can I Have Joy in My Life? And then this one is, Are People Basically Good? Uh, spoiler alert, the answer is no. We would say no. Uh, and I would love for you to know why we say no, and so you can ask me that question later. But would anyone want these books? You want the yellow one? We have a yellow one? Oh, I saw Abanas. She wants to know if people are basically good. There's that. And then we have two books by David Paulison. David Pallison. So David Pallison is a biblical counselor, and these books are How Does Sanctification Work, which is a big word for how do I become like Jesus, and then Making All Things New, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken. Uh, deep books from a, a biblical counselor. So who would like Making All Things New? Okay, you'll switch with me. Oh, well, how about you give that yellow one to Sarah? There. And then, how does sanctification work? Someone on this side, okay. It's like Oprah. And you get a book. And you get a book. I'm pretty much like Oprah. Does anyone need a Bible? We have Bibles in English. We have New Testaments in Icelandic. Elder Elliot has some. If you need uh, an English Bible, uh, or if you need an Icelandic New Testament, we're going to be in Romans today. So the scripture that we're going to start reading soon is going to be in Romans 8. And so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, Romans was, in fact, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is one of Jesus' disciples, who's a very unique disciple. He wrote a majority of the New Testament, and he was writing it to a church in Rome in the first century. So if you don't know where that's at, uh, if you have an app, you can just look uh, you know, type in Romans. Uh, if you have a hardcore Bible, a uh, hardcore Bible, a hardcover or a real Bible, that's, this is hardcore. Um, it's in the New Testament, which is the latter two-thirds, and so you turn it to the New Testament, and if you find some guys named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you keep going, and then you get to Acts, and then you keep going, and you will land yourself in Romans. And we're going to be in chapter 8, that's the big number, and we're going to be Starting in verse 18, that's the little number. If you have a Bible provided, it's in page 550, 550. Okay, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Uh, before we go to the word of the Lord, please pray with me. Father God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? It will be on the screen. And the word of the Lord says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how and what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. The title of today's sermon is The Gospel and Your Brokenness. The Gospel and Your Brokenness. So I want to tell you a story. It's kind of one of those epics that you hear about various fables, or in this country, sagas. There was a ruling king who was traveling. He was on a quest. And he comes upon the scene of a battle. Now, this king was a unique king. No other king had been like him. And this quest in which he was on was one that we would later hear about in fables and stories and myths and all kinds of things. But he comes upon this scene of a battle. He notices that a fallen soldier lay by the riverside. And standing in the way of him and his quest is a formidable knight. Knowing that a great battle has occurred, he seeks to request that this knight serve him, serve alongside him, fight alongside him. And the knight tells him no. The king, sort of offended, says, okay, well then please let me pass, since this is the only way for me to do the quest that I feel that I am called to complete, and I would like to continue. And the knight tells him, none shall pass. So what ensues is a fight. So King Arthur and the Black Knight begin fighting. And what happens is, King Arthur lands a blow with his sword, chops off the arm. This is a PG-13 story. Chops off the arm of the Black Knight. To which the Black Knight simply responds with, "'Tis but a scratch." Had worse. If you haven't caught what I'm telling you, if you're not familiar with Monty Python, I'm quoting the, the scene of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. It's a British comedic scene. And so, it's kind of funny if you watch it. And so this black knight is reluctant to give up that he's lost his arm. And then, so King Arthur lands another blow and cuts off a leg. To which he says, it's just a flesh wound. And at some point he's lost another arm. And at some point he's lost another leg. And there he lay as a stump on the ground. No arms, no legs. And says, we'll call it a draw. So this preposterous man is not yielding that he's been defeated. And so when King Arthur and his faithful sidekick Patsy walk past him, he says, oh, running away, eh? You yellow word I won't say, fatherless son, come back here and take what's coming to you. I'll bite your legs off. It's a very comedic scene of a very foolish man who would not accept that he could not carry on with the task, for he was too wounded, he was too broken, but yet he was blind. How often do we think that we're okay when we're not? How often do we think we're okay when we're not? How often do we ignore the reality of our situation? 
only to make it worse. Do we know when to stop and acknowledge that something is deeply wrong in us and outside of us? The main idea of today's sermon is that sin has broken the world. And if we fool ourselves into thinking that we are not broken sinners in desperate need of saving, we reject the redeeming grace and mercy of Jesus. Again, sin has broken the world. And if we fool ourselves into thinking we are not broken sinners in desperate need of saving, we reject the redeeming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So Paul was a real man. He was not King Arthur in Monty Python's funny depiction of King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail, the chalice of Christ. No, Paul was a real man who was acquainted with real real sorrow. And he was also a man who was acquainted with real sin. If you know the story of Paul, and if you had been with us uh, up to this point in our study in Acts, and I hope you come back next Sunday when we will pick up our study in Acts, we're about to get introduced into the chronology of the New Testament to Paul, or as he's known at this point, post-crucifixion, as Saul of Tarsus, a zealot Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, who is a persecutor of the followers of the way of Christ, persecuting the church. He would be responsible for the deaths of many Christians. He is basically a terrorist. And he is who wrote this letter to the church at Rome, a church that was also acquainted with suffering. In the capital city of the Roman Empire, which ruled with a hard fist of the emperor, who were the ones who had occupied Judea where Jesus had died. And so this is who he is writing to, and he's writing from a, per, from a perspective of, I have caused suffering. And if you know anything about Paul's life, he was acquainted with suffering. He was shipwrecked once, he was bitten by a snake, stoned nearly to death, thrown in prison, beaten more than once. And he is writing to this church that is very acquainted with both sin and suffering. And what I want us to see in the time we have today is that sin is not something small. Many of us think that it's not, especially us Christians, but I think day to day, week to week, month to month, we treat it as such. And I want us to really do a deep dive from larger area of impact of sin to personal. And then I want us to see how the gospel affects these areas. So we're going to look at three areas where we see sin, and we're going to look at, in reverse order, how Jesus Christ and the gospel touches these areas. So the first area I want us to look at is sin in the world. Sin in the world. So in verses 20 through 22 of Romans 8, Paul is recounting, which some of you might be unfamiliar if you have never studied the Bible. I don't want to assume that there's everyone in here knows the Bible. And so Paul talking about this, the creation was subjected to futility. What he's talking about is the fall. What the book, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, accounts for and recounts for us when our first parents, what we as Bible-believing Christians believe, that Adam and Eve were our first parents, first humans created in God's image, in perfect fellowship with him, but they disobeyed, they rebelled, they committed cosmic treason, and because of that, all of the world is cursed. Sin and evil now exist. And so what Paul is saying is the world was subjected to this futility. The world had nothing to do with this. Humans did this to the world. Adam was given dominion, is the word that Scripture says. He was given this kind of representative authority to represent God in creation, to to subdue it, to work the field. And since Adam sinned, 
then even the earth was now cursed because of Adam. And so Paul is referring to this idea that there's just sin in the world and friend, do we need someone to tell us that? In the wake of a pandemic, do we really need someone to tell us that something's wrong, that something's broken? If you're in here today and you think that progressivism is, is you know, the trajectory of human history is one of it, we're constantly progressing and becoming better and becoming more good, I would say in the 21st century, how do we think this? The 20th century had two great world wars and more people died between 1901 and the year 2000 than in the 19 centuries prior because of war and murder and things like genocide. So something obviously is wrong. We have murder hornets, whatever that is. We have locusts. We're in a pandemic. There are volcanoes. There are earthquakes. And what Paul is showing here is that this birth pain that's happening, this groaning, can be seen in all of creation. Something's wrong. If you're not a Christian, I would wonder what you think is the cause. But for us who believe the Bible to be true, for those of us who've repented and believed the gospel, those of us who are adopted children of God, we don't have to look further than Genesis 1 to 3. That sin has broken the world, that there's now moral evil between people and there's natural evil. Things that just point to the fact that something's wrong. So the first area where we see sin touching creation is creation itself. How many of us daily seek security in an age of insecurity and uncertainty in anything but the never-changing, eternal security of Jesus Christ. How many of us do that? Because if you do, I want to assure you that seeking security in an age of insecurity and uncertainty in anything else but the never-changing, eternal security of Jesus Christ will only lead to human suffering. And for many, eternal suffering. We Christians aren't immune to this, so they, we got the eternal suffering fixed because Jesus saved us from that. But we still can lead lives where we're looking at governments, we're looking at health organizations, we're looking at all kinds of things for our source of security, when I would say the Bible never says you have any security outside of Jesus, ever. Not only that, we shouldn't trust the world. If we're going to categorize the world by kind of what is in it and, and even what some would call the zeitgeist, which is a German word for the spirit of the age, it would say the world, if we could personify it, would say you should just pursue health, wealth, and prosperity, seek beauty, enlightenment, and fulfillment, do what you do, live your truth. Promises that never deliver. And some false Christians, people who call themselves Christians, some of them even worse, who we would call wolves in sheep's clothing, even say that this is what God wants for you, is health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you believe that, hear me say this. Do not get mad at God when he doesn't deliver on a promise he never made you. Do not get mad at God when he does not deliver on a promise that he never made to you. Read the New Testament. We're not promised health, wealth, and prosperity. We're promised eternal security. We're promised that Jesus Christ, who was the only begotten Son of God, was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life we couldn't live and died a sacrificial atoning death that we should have died taking on God's wrath for us so that we could have his righteousness. And when he was raised again on the third day, he claims that sin and death have been defeated. The devil, who we believe is real, has once and for all been defeated. The serpent has had its head crushed and that he will return again. 
And when he does, all of the sin and suffering that we see in the world will be once and for all removed. So that is our hope. Jesus says, come to me, not the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, not what they're selling you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's not Oprah's motto. There's a movie right now playing at Sambio called The Secret, Dare to Dream. It's a philosophy called New Thought or the Law of Attraction. Just think good things and they'll come. That is a lie from the devil. Meditate on Christ. He'll come. He'll come to you right now in your brokenness. He'll come to you in your need. He will come and he will save you. He will fulfill you. He is the only thing that is beautiful, and he and God's word is true enlightenment. This is how we fight against sin in the world. So if sin has infected and affected the world, well, there are people in the world, I wonder what happened to them. Sin in others. Sin in others. So Paul, in earlier parts of this letter, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, and Romans 18, says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Doesn't really sound good about the others. Seems like sin has affected people. You don't have to read very far from the beginning of the Bible to get to what sin does. As soon as Adam and Eve sin against God, they hide in their shame. As soon as God confronts them in their sin, they play the blame game. Adam, what have you done? The woman you gave me did this. Talk to her. Woman, what have you done? The serpent. He told me like it was fine. Quickly it shifts to something far more awful. Their children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his younger brother Abel because of jealousy. And the first person made in God's image that is murdered happens. And since then, humanity hasn't done a very good job. Murder, rape, greed, all kinds of violence, all kinds of harm done to people, by people. And how often do we not think about the fact that we have been hurt by people? Some people might think about it too much, feeling victimized all the time. Some people might think about it too little, not seeing the harmful effects of the sin that was done to them. Words hurt. Sexual abuse exists. Emotional abuse exists. Physical abuse exists. Bullying is still happening. If we're progressing, someone explain to me cyberbullying. It's gone digital. We're no better now as a people than we were back then. And so where, where is our explanation of this other than God's word, which says there's something deeply wrong with people? And how do we explain this? We explain this because of sin. Sin has destroyed this perfect balance we have with God. There's something deeply wrong with people as a whole, and so we're always striving and conniving and seeking our own gains, our own, like we have to have, parents have to threaten kids with, you're not going to get a Christmas gift. Like we have to bargain with people. We need laws to keep us from being lawless. Because why? Because people can be really awful. How do we explain this? The Bible says it's sin. 
So we see that sin has infected and affected people in the broken world, and all of us have been hurt by these types of people. But could that mean we also have been infected and affected by sin? Spoiler alert. Yep. Sin in you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul would say in Romans 3, 23. I don't know if you know what the word all means. You're included in it. All y'all, that's what we'd say where I'm from. All y'all got sin. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, being God, a liar. And his word is not in us. How often do you really sit there and think about your sin? We have dashboards. Everyone's familiar with dashboards, right? If you want to hear an awesome story of like how God can use a dashboard to bring about some awesome spiritual things, talk to Gunnar about dashboards. <laughs> he has a great story about when his dashboard was lighting up and it, it, God used that for him to contact uh, a pastor in the States, which helped just him be devoted fully to ministry. But dashboards do something, right? Like you do understand when that check engine light comes on that something's not right. Even if it's just a sensor, something's up. And in our lives, we have dashboards. What are they? I'll tell you about my dashboard recently. My pregnant wife, who is dealing with morning sickness and afternoon sickness and evening sickness, normally goes and buys groceries. And as a sweet wife, she normally grabs me a few knuckles, especially the lemon ones, because they're really good. And normally, I just have at least one in the fridge all the time. I went to the fridge the other day, no noco. What did I do? I became a jerk. I went to my wife, who's been feigning death, not trying to die, and was like, where's my noco? So, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't go to the grocery store yesterday because, you know, I was trying not to die. And I was like, oh, well, how about next time you tell me that? Yep. Dashboard. How prideful am I? How unloving am I? How prideful are you? How unloving are you? The New Testament's full of this. The fruits of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Guess what? If you don't have self-control, there's the dashboard. A light has come up. You have an unhealthy addiction to your phone, to Netflix, to food. Dashboard. You get mad at your pregnant wife because there's no noco in the fridge. Dashboard. And God gives us lights all the time. But what do we do with these moments? Do we do as the Bible says that we're supposed to do and confess and repent? Or do we do what we like to do, which is minimize and ignore? You don't have to go far without noticing that there's something deeply wrong with you. You really want to look? Go Exodus 20. Read the Ten Commandments. See how many of them you've broken this week. How many times you've lied. How many times you've stolen. Maybe in your life. How many times you've blasphemed. How many times you've just been unloving to God and you've worshipped other things like your job. Like your Instagram account. Like your bank account. Like your relationship. You don't have to go far to understand that sin is in you. Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, after saying all of these things about drunken, drunkenness and debauchery and sexual immorality and all these things, he goes, and some were 
And so were some of you. We all have a story, right? If you're in here and you're a Christian, you still have a story. You still have seasons of your life where you have lived completely for yourself, possibly even while also being a child of God. But if you are not a Christian in here, I want you to hear, I messed up too. But here's the difference. I've trusted and believed in Christ. I know that when I die, I'm going to face Jesus Christ as judge and he's going to judge me rightly, but he's going to forgive and pardon my sins because of what he did. Do you have the same assurance? And if you don't, Jesus was especially clear that it's not going to end well for you. Our eternal security is not in us trying to clean up our act. You don't have to clean up your act to come to Jesus. Quite the opposite. You go to him with all your brokenness and your mess, and you say, here it is, help. But many of us don't do that. Many of us just go with like the things that we're willing to give up, like kind of those like, ah, yeah, 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 I, I won't murder. Never really been a murdering person, so I, I got that one. I won't, you know, carve idols and worship them. Can't really work with wood anyway. What about your pride? What about your lust? What about the idolatry of your job or your status of life or your relationship? We kind of hold those behind our back and be like, I don't have anything else. And you're only fooling yourself. So what do we do? Broken, sinful people among broken and sinful people in a broken, sinful world. What do we do all about all this brokenness? We turn to Jesus. So the three areas of sin are Christ in the world, or sin in the world, sin in others, and sin in you. Well, what does it look like to have Christ in you? Verses 23 through 24 and verse 29. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. As John wrote in 1 John 1.10 that if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. The verse that precedes that is glorious. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's, here's the part you got to confess it. The main idea, again, is that sin has broken the world, and if we fool ourselves into thinking that we are not broken sinners in desperate need of saving, we reject the redeeming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is not a one-time thing. You could inject this. If we fool ourselves into thinking that we are not broken sinners in daily desperate need of daily saving, we daily reject the daily redeeming, redeeming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus with nothing, he'll change nothing. You come to Jesus with all your mess, he'll change it. Some of us falsely believe this concept of time heals all wounds. Sarah can tell you that's not true. Time heals clean wounds. Time does not heal infected wounds. They get worse. You think the thing that you're holding on to, the thing you haven't confessed, the, th the deep, dark place in your soul that you haven't opened up to the healing, redemptive grace of Jesus is just going to go away? No, it's going to become cancerous. It's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your parenting. It's going to affect your church. It's going to affect everything if you ignore it. If we don't expose the underlying sin in our lives, seeking to bring it to the surface, to the cross, everything gets infected. 
So how do you know if this is you? What does Christ in you look like? Well, I have some diagnostic questions. Let's give the, let's give the dashboard theme a, a try. Are you flourishing in your faith or are you fading? In the last year, would you say that your relationship with Christ has exponentially grown? That you are more mature, that you see sins being defeated, you see victory in your life? Are you thriving in your life or are you taking a dive? Would you say that your faith is flying or falling? Are you overflowing with the joy of Christ or do you feel woefully empty? Because here's the deal, have you ever read the New Testament? And if you haven't, read it today. But if you've paid attention to any of the New Testament, it seems like the Christian life is a really good deal. There's these things called joy and hope and contentment. There's these promises made. And for many of us, I feel like, have you ever gone to a, a food place that you've seen an advertisement for, like a burger that they have, only to look at the burger and go, what is this? This doesn't look like this is not what this is. How many of us treat the Christian life like that? Like, wait a second, this is not as advertised. Because we have no hope, we have no joy, we have no peace, we have no contentment. And I would say, Christian, that that is because we are failing to do the work. Yes, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and him alone, but in our savedness, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to put forth effort, Peter would say, to supplement our faith. We have to put on the new and put off the old. It's not passive. Daily, we have to wake up and say, I am a broken sinner. Help me, God. Turn with me to Luke 18. It's not going to be on your screen. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is Jesus giving a parable. He taught in parables. There were these illustrative stories that had a, a punch. And in this parable, he tells of two people, a Pharisee who was a deeply religious person and a tax collector who was despised by all religious people, was considered a traitor, was a greedy, money-hungry, slanderer, like just all the bad things. And this is what Jesus says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. At this point in the story, the Pharisees who were all the, the contempt and the righteous, like they would have been like, like Pharisee, woo, tax collector, boo. Just, just so you know what's happening. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brother, sister, Dear Christian, when we go on our day looking at the sins of other people and we don't look at our sins primarily, when we don't approach God in our brokenness and plead for mercy, we are acting as self-righteous 
non-sinning, perfectly fine hypocrites. And in doing so, we are not allowing Christ to do the work through the Holy Spirit that he wants to do where he breaks our self-sufficiency, our self-desires, our self-fulfilling everything to where we actually do what he calls us to do in Luke 9 and 23, which is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man? to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul. There's so much in Scripture. His Sermon on the Mount, he talks about those who are struggling with sin, with sin of lust to rip out their eye and to chop off or rip off their arm. He's not telling you to mutilate yourself, but he's trying to say that if there's sin in your life, you're supposed to do something about it. In Matthew 7, he says, well, what if I see sin in someone else? He's like, first pull the log out of your eye before you go tell the people about the splinter. There's so much inward focus about the Christian life that we're supposed to be actively daily seeking to kill sin. But how often do we just think that we're all fine and dandy with Christ, but all these other people, they're the ones that need Jesus. So how do we live as Christ in us? We stop treating sin as trivial because God didn't treat it as trivial. If you want proof about God treating sin with some sort of severity, look at the the cross. So whether it's pride, or maybe you feel like a victim, maybe you don't take ownership of any of the things that you've done, to contribute to a situation in which you've been harmed, whatever it is, you go and you give it to Christ. You identify yourself not as someone who's self-righteous, but also not as someone who's a victim. You identify yourself as a child of God adopted in his family by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. That's how the gospel touches our brokenness. But many of us have convinced ourselves that we're not broken. Many of us have convinced ourselves that we don't need help. And I think we make God to be a liar. Let that not be so of us. Jesus in us is supposed to be experienced by others. So as we're seeking to put off sin and to put on Christ and live in community with people, it should be experienced by others by the way we love Jesus and love them. To include things like forgiveness, where we forgive what they've done to us, and confession, we ask for forgiveness of what we've done to them. But that's how we are Christ to others. Paul would say it this way to the Corinthians in his second recorded letter to them, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there's two ways that this Christ to others works itself out. I'm going to really harp on one because I don't know a lot of you. But I, I stand here fully convinced that the local church is where this is supposed to be seen. That we are supposed to be in committed covenantal relationships with one another where we know one another, who is actually in and who is out, and where we've heard that testimony and we're watching over one another's souls as we are putting off sin and putting on Christ. These are the people we confess the sin to, the people who rebuke us when we are sinning. That the church is actually what is completely seen in the New Testament, and the solo Christian is as mythical of a creature as a unicorn or an elf. They don't exist in the Bible. So here's an illustration. Say that I tell you today, I want you to go to Greenland. I tell you that the journey is not going to be easy because you're not taking a built boat and you're not taking a plane. No, you're actually going to build a boat. But I'm going to provide you with all the material to build this boat. I'm also going to provide you with people who are going to help build this boat and who are going to help row. You're going to be a team. Together, you will eventually get to Greenland. 
All the while that you're building this boat together, you're getting to know and love these people. You're building relationships and memories. It's an experience and it's going to be great because you're going to have to weather challenges ahead and you know that this is going to be difficult. And as soon as I tell you this, you say great and then you jump in the water and start swimming to Greenland. Okay, after 10 minutes in the water, you start saying some very unchristian words, maybe in your head, maybe out loud, towards me because I told you this was going to be great. This was going to be awesome. And it's like, no, I didn't. I didn't tell you any of this. You decided to go at this alone. You actually didn't listen to anything I said. You're supposed to have a group of people with you to help with this. You're supposed to do this as a team. Dear follower of Christ, if you are not actively in a membership of a local church, I fear that you are trying to do this Christian life alone. And I don't think we need unicorn Christians. You need me and I need you. And this is the way we do this Christian life together as we're helping one another put off sin and be Christ to one another. Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 6.10 that we're supposed to seek the opportunity to do good to everyone as often as we can, comma, especially the household of faith. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35 that a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you love one another. Well, if you know much about Jesus, he loved a particular group of people very deeply over time. I read that and say, I'm supposed to be committed to all of you who are members of this church. You're not supposed to go without need. If I'm sending, you're supposed to come to me. If you're sending, I'm supposed to go to you. This is why we do D groups. This is why we try and live in biblical community together. And as the world sees this, that's how we're also Christ to others, because they see a group of people who are saying, hey, I know that everyone's telling me that sex is what I need, but no, that's actually not good. I know that everyone's telling me that abortion is okay, but no, I actually think that's murder. That sexuality and gender and all these things are super fluid, no, they're not. This is truth, and my life is one where I'm becoming more joyful, more hopeful, more fulfilled, not because I'm chasing the things of this world, but because I'm putting off the old and putting on Christ. And these people are with me. We're rowing together. That's what Christ to others is supposed to look like. But be honest with yourself. Are you being Jesus to other people? Is your life marked by that? Or do you need to like, take decisive action today? Do you need to call a family member or a friend and ask for forgiveness of something you've done? Do you need to invite the neighbor you've never talked to over for dinner? Do you need to spend less time on your phone and watching Netflix and more time spending it with your kids? We're supposed to be different. And in a world that wakes up every day realizing that there is no security in modern science or politics, what is the reason that we have hope? It's Christ. And as we are doing this for, in ourselves, in community, then we're living out what I think Jesus is calling us to, which is an expression of Christ is over the world. The Great Commission, Jesus' parting words in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He would then say in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then the Apostle John, who lived with Jesus, who was his favorite disciple, says that for anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Dear brother, sister, do you feel like an overcomer? If in Christ we have victory, do you feel victorious? If in Jesus we have Defeat over sin and death, do you daily live in that way or do you get defeated by the sin of your heart? We're supposed to be a people who lives in such a way to show the power that Jesus 
says he has, which is over sin and death, over the world, and how we live that out is as we are relinquishing control of the world of our lives. We know that sin has lost its penalty because we are Christians, but the power of sin to still seduce and entice us, the devil still wants you to sin. And he's really good at making you sin. I'm not saying he's the reason I had no noco in my fridge. But I know that I sinned against my wife. And what we know from David's repentant psalm in Psalm 51, when you sin against someone, you are sinning against God. So Christ over the world starts with our living individually as Christ is our full identity, where we don't love the world, but we love him. And we live in a church community where we are little embassies of Jesus's kingdom. And as we live lives in the world where we are exiles, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, these are the biblical words, what does it mean? Just weird people who say this dead carpenter from the first century actually was the son of God, was God in flesh, and he is my king. And trust me, people are going to think that's weird. But it's true. It's so true. And until you and I start living like that, then the world will continue to think that I can put all of my hope and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and identity in the things that can be lost. Like, March happened and we all lost our minds because the world we knew disappeared. But Jesus' kingdom has not disappeared, nor will it ever disappear. So Christ is over the world. That means something for us. We need to live like that. We're supposed to be salt and light, the people of God, the blessing to the nations, a city on a hill. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. We're supposed to be disciple makers, ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. It starts with us, though putting off sin in our lives because Jesus is so much better. Whatever you're dealing with today, dear friend, I'm not even going to say just dear brother and sister, if you're here and you're not a Christian, hear me say that the life that Christ calls you to live is not only far sweeter and better than anything you have on this side of heaven, but I assure you when you face him in judgment, you will be glad that you repented and believed and made him your Lord because whether you want him to be or not, he is your Lord. And the life he calls you to is not one of blind, begrudged obedience. It is a life of fulfillment and beauty and joy and happiness and peace and contentment. And for those of us who are Christian, it is as advertised. But are we trying to swim on our own? Or are we in the boat, each of us, doing the work of Encouraging, confessing, serving. I believe that if we get this, our lives will be marked by amazing transformations. That we will truly go from glory to glory and that people will see healing from addiction, from depression, from anxiety, from anger, from lust. But if you're trying to do this on your own, hear me say this, you will not win. Because it's not what Jesus has called us to. So whatever it is, whatever is the underlying sickness, get with someone today. Ask them to pray for you. Go to the sharp sword of truth, the word of God, and, and let him cut deep into the marrow and expose the sin, and then go and confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Let them walk with you through this season of healing and redemption and restoration. So in closing, I just have three questions. Are you acquainted with your sin and suffering? If you're in here today and you think you have no sin and no suffering, I don't think anyone can help you. I just don't. If you don't think that you have it, if you think that you're self-righteous, if you think that you're going to be fine when you die and stand before God, if you even think there's a God or you think that everything's fine in your life, I would probably say that 
you're blind. All of us deal with stuff, right? Maybe we don't tell anyone, but we're all dealing with things. We look in the mirror and we hear the, the mean comment that the girl said when we were 12. We see a picture of ourselves and we realize that I'm deeply insecure. We see the relationship we have and we don't know why we say the things that we say or do the things that we do, but we do them. We wish we didn't, but we do. I think that there's joy waiting for you if you become not only acquainted with your sin and suffering, but then become acquainted with Christ. Are your sin and suffering acquainted with Jesus Christ? He's acquainted with sin and suffering. Isaiah says so in Isaiah 53.3. He's beckoning all of us to come to him. All of us who are burdened and broken and weary and he will give us rest. Is your sin and suffering acquainted with him? And lastly, are your sin and suffering daily being redeemed by Jesus Christ? Think about it. Do you feel like you have the hope of God in you? And if not, hear me say that there is rest for your soul in Christ. Today can be the day that you finally start experiencing victory over sin. But it doesn't involve you doing it alone. It involves the people to your left, to your right. It involves this church family or whatever church family you're a part of. It involves the Word of God. It involves the Holy Spirit. So if you have never cried out to Christ to save you, today can be that day. And if you have done that, but your life is marked by sin, today can be the day that you go deep with Jesus and his people. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is because we believe that we as a people have been called to a hope that hope is when Jesus will return and all things will be made new. The sin in the world and the sin in others and the sin in us will once and for all be defeated and we all will rejoice because there will be no more sadness, no more death, no more tears. And until that day, we who are a church family, we partake of this meal together. And so if you are a baptized believer who is a part of our church family or maybe you're from another local church, like we invite you to be a part of this. We really do. We want you to anticipate what we anticipate and celebrate what we celebrate. But if you're not a Christian here, uh, this would almost be meaningless. I would more or less want you to just think about what it represents that Christ's broken body and his shed blood were given to us for the forgiveness of sins. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, I would ask that instead of you coming to partake in this, feel no obligation, you just think about the message today. So I'm going to pray for us and then the worship team will come up and lead us in a song. And during the song, just reflect, go to God, repent of what you need to repent, confess, pray, and then come and grab the elements, the juice and the bread, and then I will come up and lead us in taking the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That in Christ, we have been promised an inheritance that is eternal, that is in heaven. We've been adopted by the Holy Spirit into your family. We are your children, God. And Christ is our big brother, and he will come one day and finally defeat the devil and all of his dark ways. But Lord, until that time, we are called to persevere. With the strength that you give us every day, we are called to fight the good fight of faith. We are called to put off sin and to seek in the power of the Spirit to live lives that are marked by holiness. But not just holiness, joy. God, you want us to be joyful. You want us to be hopeful. You want us to have peace, and many of us don't. Lord, cut deep into us through your word and your spirit and expose the areas we are not trusting you in. Expose the areas of sin that we cling too tightly to. 
Expose the places where we are faithless. And I pray convict us to walk in a new and fresh way with you, King Jesus. To walk in step with the Spirit. To put off the old and put on the new. To experience the fullness of life you've called us to, O oh, great King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.